0: Hey, this is Annie and Samantha, and welcome to Stuffmo. Never told you a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. You know what time it is?
1: It's that time. What what time? It's time for another female
0: first. Yes, yes. Which means we are joined once again by our good friend and colleague, Eve. Welcome, Eve. Hi, hello there. Hi, friend.
1: We don't get to see often because she's so busy. I uh,
0: know. Aren't yeah. we all? It's yes. true. It is true. And I have some terrible news. I did not bring the cheesecake or the <laughs> champagne. <laughs> I have failed
2: in this regard. Oh, no. You know what? It's okay. I, honestly, I've been eating a lot of ice cream lately, and I think piling on cheesecake on top of that is like... It's risky. It's risky. Yeah. It's risky. A risky proposition. <laughs> <laughs> really ruining the weekend now. Yeah. So no heart feelings. Okay. Okay, but the you. next
1: time. Yes. Let's add to the list. So, in this cheesecake and champagne, and then what else should we add? Every time
0: we add, yeah, something. until we actually finally do it. Yeah, I think it, we need like balloons or confetti. <laughs> Let's
2: see what I actually would really love some mason jars. So, oh, if you yeah. have
0: any wide mouth, like
2: okay, small oh, mason I jars. Knew.
0: Oh, I can help you okay. with that. You do? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. We're getting really practical here. The, this yeah. Is I was
1: going to say, by the end of this, we're going to have like a table, a full plate <laughs> setting, it sounds like.
2: We're going all like in.
0: Gift giving one on
2: 101. Yes. <laughs> <You know, laughs> holiday season's coming up.
0: So uh, it's true. And uh, we could be our own version of the Finer Things Club from yes. the office. Yes.
1: Yeah. People will be like, what are they up to? All <laughs> right. Or the Wine and Cheese Club from Parks and Rec. Yes. Where we can we wine. Need no.
2: Yeah, I don't. I'm out on the references. I'm sorry, I feel like this happens every time. There's one person who just like, yeah, to share the references, it's right.
0: <laughs> There's one, yeah, he, we doesn't... got the
2: SpongeBob, we got it. Yeah. You've got that other, I've never thing. seen The Office or Parks and Rec, so really, yeah.
0: Well, it's just a fancy club, basically. Right. And I would
2: tell you, <laughs>
1: probably, you don't mean. watch The Office because it's not dated well.
0: Oh, really?
2: Yeah, oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh,
0: it's hard for um, um, Tracy, who is a manager, she always said it was so hard for her to watch because it's. Terrible management.
2: Oh, really?
1: That's yes. the thing. <laughs> yeah, that oh, was what got exactly. Her. Yeah, yeah, an incompetent dude trying to
0: run an office. Yep, yep. But the finer things club was lovely, and mm-hmm. we can have our own version. I think we'll have to have a tablecloth, but we'll we'll workshop that outside of this <laughs> this podcast episode. Um, who did you bring for us today, Eve?s Today is Huda Sha'arwi.
2: So she is a really, really important figure in feminist and Egyptian history. Um, the, first, the first is that she was the first president of the Arab Feminist Union, and she has some other firsts thrown in there as well. But uh, she did a lot of stuff and was like she had her hands in a lot of pots when it came to feminism. And yeah, so we're going to talk about her today. There is this idea that Westerners have like often assumed that women in the Middle East and in North Africa are oppressed by Islam and men and that they have no rights and no autonomy and that there is this whole rhetoric that women needed to be liberated from that kind of practice. That continues today. You know, there are a lot of conversations around veils and around, um, you know, coverings. But there that view that women are, like, universally oppressed and passive about the practices that they were subjected to and that they haven't advocated or organized for themselves is just not accurate. It's rooted in stereotyping. It's rooted in imperialism. It's rooted in saviorism and misconceptions mm. and like all of those things. Mm. And obviously she she was born in 1879. So things are a lot were a lot different then than they are today. Things are not we're not Western. You know, there's the issue of time, there's the issue of place. But um yeah, like
0: she just did so much. I'm really excited to talk about her today. She did a lot. Um, and I think this is one, um, we and we've talked about this before and kind of our anxiety around first, but this is one where the context and time period is so important.
2: Yes. Um, yeah, and I, I do always love to do that disclaimer of, like, there's a reason that a person was a first. They're situated in a certain time and place, and that means that there are probably people left out of the conversation and people who contributed that aren't that aren't mentioned but also, like, had a huge role in what their first was and that is first are always an issue of access. And, like, in Huda Shaari's instance, she was wealthy, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the struggle or a lot of the work that she was doing also happened within middle-class and upper-class circles, but there were also lower-class women who were participating in their own you know, in their own ways. Right.
0: It's also, as always, an issue of, like, what gets recorded and what doesn't.
2: Right. Exactly. Yes. That's a big one.
0: It is. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But all that disclaimer aside, we do have a lot to talk about. So, why don't we get started? Let's do it.
2: So, as I said, she was born in 1879 on her family's estate in Egypt, and her father was Sultan Pasha, and he was a wealthy landowner, and he was a government official as well. And so she was raised in Cairo. And it was common for upper-class Egyptian men to have a wife, to have secondary wives, to have concubines. And that was the household that she was born into. So she lived with her mother, Iqbal Hanem, and her father's wife, Hasiba, and her brother and her father's other children and servants and enslaved people. And so there is... Iqbal Hanem, her mother, was a Circassian refugee. And the Circassians are a Northwest Caucasian ethnic group. But some historians have said that she was a concubine of her father. But Huda said in her personal memoirs that her mother and her father were married. So there's a little bit of discrepancy over that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, her father died when she was really young. He died of kidney disease when she was five years old. And as was typical for elite girls at the time. Yeah. She grew up studying with tutors at home. Mm. Um, and she was taught Arabic, Persian, Turkish, and French. And she studied music, the Quran, calligraphy, poetry, and the piano, and all the things. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah it's, that's intense. Um, yep. <laughs> but before she was 10, she had memorized parts of the Quran In her memoirs, she says that she really loved poetry, and that love increased because she got visits from the itinerant poet Sayyida Khadija al-Maghribia. She visited their house often, and she wrote that Sayyida Khadija impressed me because she used to sit with the men and discuss literary and cultural matters. Meanwhile, I observed how women without learning would tremble with embarrassment and fright if called upon to speak a few words to a man from behind a screen. Observing Sayeda Khadija convinced me that with learning, women could be equals of men if not surpass them. My admiration for her continued to grow, and I yearned to be like her, in spite of her ugly face. Ooh. That took a a turn at the end. Dang. Dang. That was unexpected. It was so unexpected because I saw this quote in places (laughs) and they always left that part off at the end and I looked at her memoir and I saw that and I was like, whoa. (laughs) Whoa, that was strong.
0: Um, But you know. Wow. It is what it is. Okay. (laughs) It is. Um, We have a lot more to discuss with you listeners, but first, we have a quick break forward from our sponsor. back. Thank you, sponsor. And thats I mean, that's something we've talked about a lot on the show is the importance of like seeing yourself and especially at a young age and thinking, oh, well, then that is an avenue available for me. And that's something also that's come up in a lot of these female firsts. I'm always kind of surprised at their circle, if you will, like the the cameo, famous historical people that come up. Wow. Because it does seem to be a pretty big impact or influencer on a lot of the women we've talked about is these people who kind of come into their lives and they witness like wow look at that Mm -hmm. yeah
2: um i think that's really cool too because a lot of the time um like you know that's also a question of access like who you can be around yeah that doesn't mean that you know that there aren't people who are super influential and super intelligent and super talented that are of you know the lower class but you know it it's it's really good to have somebody to look to that. Right. You know, sure. You can say
1: this is possible for me. And having um, that connection could also open doors for people to hear of you.
2: Yeah. As <laughs> yeah. well. People true. who
1: may not be in that same circle. Because those famous people will be the ones that influence. Oh, so and so is coming up and you should get to know them and they've done these things, which is awesome if you can have it. Networking that, is beautiful.
2: Yes. If that, it can work out. It can be. <laughs> it <laughs> can be. <laughs> I'm sensing you guys have had some negative experiences. I'm
0: not great at networking, <laughs> but uh, you're
1: better than you think. I, yeah, I'll take that.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, getting that. back,
1: she yes. had an amazing influence who was not so pretty. Fantastic.
0: <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, we don't know that for sure. That's her. So judgment according to her, not, right. we're not right. saying anything. Oh no, any but uh, it is
1: interesting that she had to say that as if it was something that could have
2: hold her, <laughs> held her back. Right. Like, right. Right. Yeah. Like there was a there was a chance that I wasn't going to make this happen because she's ugly. Yeah, but. Beyond right. that. Beyond <laughs> yes. that. Keep going. Her younger brother, Umar Sultan, got more attention than her, and she often voiced her frustrations about that, about him being favored because he was a boy. And she often voiced her frustrations to uh, Hasiba, her father's widow at this point. Um, and she called Hasiba Kabira, which means big mother in Arabic. And though she spent time around boys when she was young, like her brother her neighbor, and the sons of family friends. She was restricted to the company of women and girls around the age of 11. So women and men were separated with girls and women restricted to a part of the house called the harem. And so she had to talk from two men from behind a screen. Uh, so women in seclusion were guarded by eunuchs who were usually castrated enslaved men from Sudan. And as Marianne Faye puts it in the book Unveiling the Harem, Veiling and seclusion go hand in hand as outside the home as veiling made women unapproachable by men and effectively constructed a harem around them outside the home. So she was already becoming (laughs) frustrated with gender roles when she was 13 years old and her family arranged her marriage to her cousin and legal guardian, Ali Shaarui, who was in his late 40s. (laughs) Mm. She didn't want to marry him, so her mother put in the marriage contract that he had to dump his concubine, who he was with at the time and had children with, and live with just Shaharawi. Mm. So he broke the contract, and when his concubine got pregnant with his child, and she, she was like, "I'm dipping," <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and lived away from him for like seven years until he was <laughs> 21 years old. Until she was 21 years old, excuse me. So, during that time, she became close to a woman named Eugénie Lebrun, and Lebrun was a French woman who was married to an Egyptian man who had written books on Egyptian social customs. So, we, you know, she's starting to meet all these people, like we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. who influenced her. So, we went to salons that Lebrun hosted at her home in the 1890s, and those discussions often turned to current events, to education, to social practices, And LeBron exposed Shaari to even more ideas of Western feminism. And LeBron suggested that the veil was a thing that was hindering Egyptian women's advancement. So in 1900, you know, years go by. In 1900, Shaari returned to life with her husband, and they had two children around that time. Like within the next five years, they had a couple of children. And then she met a French woman named Marguerite Clement, who was a lecturer and was touring the Middle East on a Carnegie endowment. And Clement detailed her public speaking events to Sha'arwi. And Sha'arwi decided to take up that task on her own and do her own public lectures for Egyptian women. And she began doing these public lectures in Cairo regularly after she did her first one, and they were pretty much a hit. Like, there were, you know, women coming out to do this in public, In 1908, she helped found the first secular philanthropic organization operated by Egyptian women, a medical dispensary for underprivileged women and children. And it was established through private donations, through fundraising, and other incomes. So she advocated for women-led services and, you know, social projects because they allowed women to get more practical knowledge and challenged notions of women as these subservient people as, who were just objects of pleasure. And this education is a huge thing in her story. Yeah. Um, women women learning through experience and women having access to the same education that boys and men had access to. Um, that comes up a lot in her story. That's something that she was really passionate about. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So she thought that rich folks should give back through donations and other charity But she did kind of have, in a way, a limited dualistic view of the rich as protectors and the poor as people who received services and kind of had no say in the matter. She created the Intellectual Association of Egyptian Women in 1914, which worked to improve women's intellectual and their social lives. So at this point, gender separation was still typical for women Uh, of middle and upper classes, but they were starting to abandon those seclusion practices and taking teaching jobs, participating in the press, and participating in charities and literary societies. So Sha'arui criticized the restrictions that were put on elite women by seclusion and veiling and was dissatisfied with concubinage and polygamy and, you know, supported the restriction of polygamy. And so... The Egyptian Revolution of 1919 is a part of her story. It was a revolution that was against Britain's occupation of Egypt and Sudan. And obviously this happened a lot with Britain as an imperialist power. So many revolutions against them as the colonial authorities. And Mm. Egypt is no exception. So the Sultanate of Egypt was declared a British protectorate in 1914. But Egyptians soon began calling for Egyptian complete autonomy. So just after the November 11th, 1918 armistice, a delegation that was called a Awafid of Egyptian nationalists made a request to the High Commissioner Reginald Wingate to end the British Protectorate in Egypt and Sudan and get Egyptian representation at the next peace conference in Paris. But the British government refused to accept that delegation, and the Wafd soon turned into a nationalist organization and then later into a political party, a nationalist political party. And so at the same time, there was also a movement, like a groundswell movement for Egyptian and Sudanese independence. And women's role, of course, was huge and integral in that struggle. Don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Women are always there. Um, <laughs> Sharwi and her husband became leaders in the Egyptian independence movement. And in 1919, she organized a pro- protest and called on other women to take to the streets and protest of British rule, a lot of that happening with her. And her husband was a member of the Nationalist Waffet Party. And in 1920, she became the president of the Wafdist Women's Central Committee. And she led women's demonstrations. She set up petitions and protests against colonial authority. She raised funds and she maintained communications when Waffet members were locked up or exiled. And obviously, she mobilized women across Egypt to join the movement, too. And so, in 1922, she had a women's meeting at her house where they decided to boycott British goods and take their money out of British banks, organizing, more organizing right. for the cause. And so, Egypt became a constitutional monarchy in 1923. And under that designation, it was still under British control. Right. <laughs> so... The last troops weren't withdrawn until 1957, so much later. But, you know, a lot happened between those right. two times. But there was still a lot that had to be done in terms of, like, their autonomy. And so, male—at this point, the Waffet Party was, like, more active, and then they had more—Egyptians had more of a role in, in politics and, and uh, legislation and all that stuff. And so, male nationalists— had argued for education for women so women could become better homemakers and mothers, especially to sons who were going to grow up, and we've seen this happen before, who were going to grow up and participate in the economy and participate in government. But they were largely dismissive of the idea of women in the workforce. Mm -hmm. And as we'll see later, she argues like intellectualism and education is important in creating good mothers and, you know, people who are able to participate in society, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so women's role in the home became integral to the nationalist mission of building the state and its power. But under Egypt's new constitution, women weren't granted the right to vote. And Mm -hmm. so they felt betrayed by that where it was something that they were promised and something that they had worked so hard for themselves because um, Wafd had agreed to grant them women's suffrage. Um, so Sha'ari and other women were really frustrated with the party for its lack of commitment to feminism and how it treated women's rights as less important than the independence movement. And so she and other women left the Central Committee, the Women's Central Committee. And in 1923, this is a big part of her story, she founded the Egyptian Feminist Union, um, and that was made up of middle and upper class women And so it advocated for women's suffrage, for women's education, change in personal status laws. It also continued to fight for full Egyptian independence and advocated for equal political rights for women, more employment opportunities, and like other stuff. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Wow. A
0: lot of stuff. A lot of things. A lot of things.
2: Yeah. And it established clinics, schools, scholarships, and literacy programs, and we'll Talk more about what it did, but like in the end, it didn't accomplish all of its goals, um, but there were some gains that were made during Huda Sharwi's lifetime. Mm-hmm. It paved the way for later feminists. And so feminist efforts that were once intertwined with the independence right. cause from Britain became more focused on changing Egyptian societal norms regarding women. Shaari said that if women's status continued to be defined by their familiar roles and their rights remain limited, then that would limit the progress of society, including men's. That would limit the future of civilization. Um, and so this is where we get into, like, her philosophy is developing a little bit more. And she emphasized the importance of women and girls' education as a way for them to be critically and intellectually engaged in society as a path toward more autonomy and social improvement and being just, all in all, better moral beings. She advocated for public schools for everyone and that women have access to all educational facilities in Egypt and that women were able to pursue the same professions as men and that women should be represented in parliament, and there were a lot of conservative people who obviously did not, were not on board with all of these ideas. This fight for women's rights in Egypt was a long and protracted thing that happened over a period of many years. So she was still, you know, I brought up the moral beings thing. Her feminism was still anchored within Islam. So she subscribed to the idea of ishtahad or independent inquiry and in interpreting the Quran, as opposed to accepting uncritical legal prescriptions of Islam. And this goes back to a theory that was uh, proposed or developed by men in the past, that she kind of walked her way into that discourse. And so she developed her ideas based on that theory, and she claimed that society was denying women their Islamic rights since Islam didn't deny women access to education. And it was, in fact, quote, misogyny masquerading as Islam as Dr. Rula Kwawas, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but as Dr. Rula Kowas put it once, and that that actually relegated Muslim women to inferior status. She recognized that Islam actually valued gender equality and hard work and afforded women rights that they weren't granted in practice in society at the time. And so Sha'arwi and a couple of other Egyptian women went to the ninth Congress of the International Women's Suffrage Alliance in Rome in May of 1923. And so in her speech there, she argued that Islam granted women equal rights to men and that the Quran had been misinterpreted. And when she got back to Egypt, that's when one of the symbolic moves of her life happened, and she removed her veil in public mm-hmm. at a Cairo train station, Ooh. which signaled her embrace of her role as a public leader in the women's movement wow. in Egypt. Yeah. And so, though it's a like a symbolic move that's really highlighted in her story and has a lot of weight in tellings of her story, she advocated for a gradual approach to removing the veil and... Yeah, she didn't spend a ton of time on the issue.
0: Mm -hmm. She obviously did a lot, though. (laughs) She definitely did.
2: (laughs) Um, She advocated for women working to gain financial independence and for a minimum age for marriage.
0: So this Mm -hmm. is where the
2: familial, the, the family law comes in. And she also worked to limit easy access that men had to divorce and to restrict the practice of polygamy, as we said earlier, and to abolish the forcible restitution of a wife to her husband, and for divorced women to keep their children for a longer period, because it was limited at the time. So there was a little progress in those family laws. In 1923, Egypt's parliament raised the minimum age of marriage for girls to 16, and there was a little progress on divorce laws, but it was still harder for a woman to get a divorce than a man to get a divorce. And in 1929, they did extend the period of a mother's custody over her children. So, a little progress happening. Yeah. Um, and so, also in 1925, education, primary education specifically for for everybody was made compulsory, so for girls and boys. And... She also helped start the Club of the Women's Union, which raised funds to support a clinic and dispensary, craft workshops, childcare facilities, and journals on women's issues. What was the? When was the law placed for the sixteen-year-old? That was nineteen twenty-five. No, that was nineteen twenty-three. I believe. Yeah, nineteen twenty-three. Say, was that before even the U.S.
1: placed the? Uh, of? yeah. That's yeah. the thing about
2: a lot of this. Damn. Did happen that's before the U.S. Up
1: wow so much more progressive Uh (laughs) uh-huh because even still there was still a loophole until like the 2000s yeah for uh underage kids to be married for child brides or child marriage i mean that's
2: damn yeah go ahead (laughs) yeah i guess a lot i feel like a lot of people like don't put it put that in context that's the hard thing about Mm -hmm. because because the myth is so pervasive that like the East is more backwards than the West is, and they see veils and they're like, "This is not our idea of feminism and of progress and of right," even though ours is still U.S. specifically rooted in religion as well. Right.
0: Um, Yep. (laughs) it's,
2: It's so easy to be so hypocritical. Right. And also, just like we're not educated, uh, we're we're often not educated about. Realities, exactly, and we have no other basis but the myth, right? So it's like, yeah. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. that's a whole like yeah. other conversation.
1: Good to note, though, that that is something that was so much more progressive before the U.S., which we see as the standard of progression. You're like, no, right?
2: <laughs> no, mm-hmm. look at what's been happening. Yeah, she also advocated for Palestinian women who lost their homes during the establishment of Israel. And she was influenced by the nationalist movement in Palestine and began to define nationalism in pan-Arab rather than Egyptian terms and was framing feminism within those terms and became a little bit more doubtful of Western feminists. She was also a leader in the International Alliance for Women's Suffrage and advocated for women's political rights and suffrage, even though women in Egypt didn't gain the vote until 1956, um, which was after her death. Mm -hmm. And so as more and more women joined the workforce, the Prince of Egypt announced his opposition to women working outside the home. In a journal that she established, Le Jibshian, she responded, and she said this, "'Muslim law clearly acknowledges and advocates the equality of the sexes and does not ascribe one domain of work to one more than the other.'" And then she went on to say, It is as if your highness has forgotten that our religion had given the woman the free range and right to dispose of her goods in any way she sees fit, she is able to sell and secure a mortgage and to bequeath and to testify. And then she went on to say, The great lawgiver has high reverence for the woman, but man refuses to admit that and grant her respect owing to his self-centeredness. He wishes to constrain woman and deny her any field of action. So the same idea that this is not this is right. not accurate. <laughs> right. This is not based in any
0: reality of Islam is what right. she was saying there. Like challenging the interpretation she of the gave people him in some power. Seats. Oh yes, yeah. that is, was a solid is an, burn. No. Is that what I no? Yes.
2: <laughs> no, no, yeah. Uh, I was agreeing with you. That's what that look was. Okay, okay. I was like
0: <laughs> a little bit of shock, but <laughs> <laughs> agreement. I need to work on my expressions. <laughs> Don't we oh. all? <laughs> Mine aren't good. <laughs> we have a little bit more for you listeners, but first we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. Thank you, sponsor. Let's get back into it.
2: So, she was essential in forming the Arab Feminist Union in 1944, which promoted gender equality and Arab nationalism. And she played a key role in founding it and organizing within it. And she became the first president of that organization. And so, yeah, she continued her work basically until she died, and she died in 1947. Two years before that, she was recognized when she was given the highest decoration in Egypt called the Nishan al-Kamal Award. That happened in 1945. And yeah, so she she died in 1947 in Cairo. After that, the name of the EFU was changed to the Sha'arwi Society for the Feminist Renaissance. And even though a lot of the things the EFU worked for weren't completely gained in her lifetime— There was obviously a lot of progress afterward, and a lot of people who were inspired by the work that she did and a lot of changes, you know, in terms of the things that her philosophy and, you know, the things that she advocated for um, as feminism changes over time as well. You know, Mm -hmm. I know um, not everything that she fought for or the way that she fought is everybody, even within the Arab community or for Muslims or for feminists, is going to be the same. Right. But she really laid the groundwork for a lot of political activism that was to happen in the coming years and to this day. And she supported women and women's movements in other countries besides Europe. And she also shifted mindsets and behaviors and culture at the time for women and for others and shifted power relations between men and women. And so, you know, as we spoke of, she extended a lot of educational and professional, like what jobs were available to women at the time. She extended that a lot during her lifetime. And yeah, that's that's her story and her legacy. That's a pretty good one. I was gonna
1: say
0: that's an intense, large legacy.
2: It's a long, long, <laughs> long list of achievements.
0: Yeah. I uh I think it's a great example of um one how feminism does touch on so much more than people realize sometimes right. I think. Like it involves everything. Mm-hmm. Um and just all the issues she was working on. I to me, I feel like that could be an entire lifetime just doing that one.
1: Right. <laughs> but she was working on so right. many. Right. Um and even still kind of translate to, to today. The, yeah. The, this, even when we talk about women in job bills, talking about equal pay and equal opportunity. Right. Still like a necessary need everywhere. And she was the beginning. And voicing that in what we would have, again, as we established, oh, this is so backwards compared to, but it's not. They've been trying to do this. They've been trying to fix this.
2: Yeah, and (laughs) and even the idea of the fact that a lot of the things that we even aspire to are Western ideals of what we think needs to be achieved, like a Western ideal of democracy. or This is the only way things can happen for progress to be achieved, and that's not
0: necessarily the case. Right. Mm Mm-mm yeah, um, I love that you bring people from all over because I think in our our right. little US bubble, um, yeah. it's easy to forget that there's so much out there. Right. So much. And how yes. young we are as a country. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I forget that all the time. Right. And then I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> in 90 BCE, and I'm yeah. like,
2: what? We don't right. have that. What, what is that? <laughs> I don't even understand that. <laughs> I don't know what
0: that is. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, I do think it's worth reminding ourselves because it, it can be very exhausting and tiring to fight these fights all the time. And it just, it does take, it does it take still some. still takes time. Uh, well, we're still doing it, yeah. Right. That's the thing is, and we recently talked about the perception of good news versus bad news. And good news can take so much longer. Right. That we don't see it sometimes. So it's great that we're recognizing yeah. These these women who've made changes.
2: Yeah. I think it's also very interesting to see their like journey of enlightenment and like what is the thing that made them yeah. f- fight as hard as they did and what's mm-hmm. the thing that inspired or the people who inspired them to participate in politics or in activism or in organizing. I think that's always a fascinating right. thing to see. Um because every Like, all these women come at it in such different ways and come at it from such different viewpoints. Like, Mm -hmm. as we know, she was wealthy. And it just really highlights how vast and, like, how much of a spectrum it is when it comes to the things that people face and the similarities and the differences in people's struggles.
0: Yeah. I I love that one of her... Big points was that she saw that her younger brother was yeah. getting more respected than her. I love that. <laughs> right, right. No, this isn't right. Yeah. All of
2: a sudden like, this is like she loved him, but
0: yeah. But well, she had a few she complaints. Right.
2: Right.
1: Look, she's she like, it's not he's your a fault. Great guy. It's not your fault, but it's still not fair.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. Well, this was wonderful as always, Eve. Thanks for for joining us. Thank
2: you for having me.
0: Where can the listeners find you? So, uh, you can listen to me on any of the
2: various podcast listening platforms Mm -hmm. on the shows This Day in History class or the show Unpopular. You can look us up on the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter, all of the things at, you can just find us on Unpopular, if you look up the Unpopular podcast or This Day in History class. And... That's it. <laughs> I, oh, I, I was, was there like, anything else?
0: ooh. <laughs> I like a good and with a dramatic pause <laughs> that leads to... Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> nope, got nothing. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, certainly go check that out for for more stories like this, listeners. Um, and also, if you have any suggestions for some good female first, you can send them to us. Our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou or on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. Thanks to our guest, Eves. Thanks to our super producer, Andrew Howard. (laughs) And thanks to you for listening. Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.